Genesis 45, 1 through 10. Then Joseph could not control himself for all those who stood by him. He cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. Well, good morning, Cross Point. It is so good to be with you guys and get to open up God's word um, and share with you guys. Um, I know last week you guys started this, this series, The History of Redemption, going through the whole story of God um, for the next few months. And I also know that last week you got all the way through Genesis 1-1, which is a phenomenal pace. So keep it going. It's doing really, really well. Um, but I am excited this morning to cover just the next 45 chapters of Genesis. No big deal. Um, but we will uh, end our time in Genesis 45 like um, we just read, uh, looking at the life of Joseph. But a few key things that happen before we get to Joseph, right? God, God establishes his covenant with Abraham. We see from the beginning of creation, man uh, brings sin into the world, and God immediately starts working his redemptive plan. And one of the, the first things that happens is God says, this plan that I'm working to redeem my rebellious children, I'm going to do it through a specific people. And God comes to Abraham and he establishes his covenant that he would give him land and, and descendants. He would make him a great nation and that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. And we know that's uh, because of Christ. And, and we see that Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has these 12 sons. So this morning um, we are going to sort of hop around a little bit, but um, we're going to start in Genesis 37. So if you want to um, turn there, that'll be our first stop, but we're going to move towards uh, chapter 45, like we just read. So let's go to the Lord um, in prayer as we begin. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your gospel and your word, and I pray that as we gather together, Lord, that you would do what you love to do and you would, you would remind us and shape us. Lord, I pray that uh, maybe for the first time we would get a glimpse of your grace for some of us. And for, for the rest of us, God, I pray that you would open our eyes wider, just a little wider, to your goodness, uh, that we would experience you and love you. In Christ's name, 
Amen. Amen. So um, I brought with me a, a picture this morning. I think we have a, a slide for it. Um, but this is me and uh, my son Daniel, I believe. Maybe not. Picture a small child, and that'll give you um, sort of what that photo is. Um, but uh, so we have Daniel, who's almost two, and uh, Ben, who is just seven months. And this was about a year ago. This was before we had Ben, and, and we're doing like the first parent thing, and Daniel's a little bit sick. Like, he's a, he's a little bit sick. He's not, like, very sick. But we are uh, very freaking out <laughs> because our baby is a little bit sick. And so uh, there he is. There's little Daniel. Um, but so, so he's a little sick, and it's, it's late at night, so we're, we're calling, you know, what should we do? He's, he's like, kind of, should we go? Should we stay? Or just the whole teledoctor thing. And finally, the teledoctor was like, I, th- I think you should go. And so midnight, the only place open is the emergency room, and, and he doesn't know what's going on, and so we, we roll into the emergency room around midnight, and, and then after that, he really didn't feel well, because he started to just lose it, because all of a sudden, all these people were coming, and they were giving him blood pressure and putting a breathing thing, and, and, and he just started to, to panic, and he was suffering, and he had no idea what was happening, and I'm having these, like, first-time dad feels. <laughs> this is, like, our, our baby, and I'm like, oh, I didn't know I could feel this way about that thing, <laughs> you know? Um, and so, I mean, he, it, it wasn't a huge deal. He just panicked, and we got out of there after a couple hours. But I'm just in that moment, like, man, he, he has no idea. He has no idea what's happening. All these people are coming in. He's, he's panicked. He's suffering. They're putting stuff on his face. They're giving him the blood pressure thing, and, and he's, he's scared and suffering. And he's looking at me like, like I trusted you. <laughs> How could you do this to me? And in that moment, it's like, oh man, I just wish you could, I wish you could get it. Like you don't have the capacity to get it. And I know that you're scared and I know that you're suffering, but like, ah, I love you. And and like one day you'll get it, even if you can't get it right now. And I tell that story because um, as we look at this passage today, as we look at the life of Joseph, it is filled with suffering. Joseph's life is filled with pain and so it's, this, God's word today is going to tell us something about suffering and perspective in suffering and how we suffer. It's, it's going to tell us something about a good father who's sovereign over the situation and who's working in ways that, that like the son can't understand. But more than those things, it's, it's going to tell us a story. It's going to point us to the ultimate story of Christ and him coming. It's going to say a lot about that. So here, here's the plan for this morning. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Genesis 37, um, and then we'll move quickly through the life of Joseph to end in 45. So uh, Jacob has 12 sons, and we see immediately that Joseph is his favorite. Look at um, verse 3, verses 3 and 4. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than his brothers, they hated him. They couldn't speak peacefully to him. So there's this like blatant favoritism right in in these guys' face as as they're growing up. And it it started with envy. And it says that they, they hated him because he got what they wanted. It wasn't fair. And it wasn't fair. It was valid. The reason why they were upset. So it started as, as envy, and, and we see that it, it just grows for years. It, it never changes. It only 
gets worse. And God gives Joseph these dreams that one day his family, his brothers, are going to bow down to him. Now, now, a little later, we see Joseph is 17 years old. And I get to work with students, and I get to hang out with a lot of 17-year-olds. And sometimes there's these moments where, like, a 17-year-old will say something, and I'll be like, bro, just read the room a little bit. Like, just, just think before the words a little bit. <laughs> and so in this passage, Joseph has a little bit of a, like, dude, read the room moment. Because he has these dreams, and he's like, hey, guys, I know you hate me, um, but I had this dream that you were bowing down to me. Like, not your best plan. Read the room a little bit. And so one day we, we see that, that Jacob sends Joseph out to meet his brothers in the fields. And here's what Genesis 37, starting in 18, says. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Like, this, this had been 17 years of this thing, like, brewing and just growing inside of them. And it led them to the point of, like, let's murder our brother. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we'll see what has become of his dreams. Down to verse 23. So Joseph came to his brothers and they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. So we see that the only reason why this, this plan for murder, why it stopped short of murder, was, was eventually just for greed. So that they could actually profit a little bit off of it. That seemed better in the moment. So they stopped just short of murder. And I want to I stop and just talk about a little bit of a, a warning for us, because maybe for some of us, we've been in the church for a long time. Maybe we've been following the Lord for a long time. And there can be a tendency when we get to a passage uh, like this that's very well known, um, there can be a tendency because we know the end of the story. We know the end of the suffering. We just read it before I even came up here. We know what's going to happen. And there can be a tendency for us to view the suffering through a lens of, yeah, but eventually this happens. And, and I want to warn us against doing that specifically in this chapter because it's very important that we understand the weight and the reality of what happens. They, in that moment, they couldn't read the next four chapters. It was just this brutal scene. So I'm going to read it again, verse 23. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. It, later on in, in chapter 42, as the brothers are, are looking back on this scene, it, it says this in 42, 21, we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we didn't listen. So think about the weight of that picture. This, this high school-aged kid, sure, he, he shares stuff he shouldn't share. Sure, he's been spoiled. Yes, true. But that this high school kid going out to his brothers and then totally betraying for him, stripping him, stopping just short of murder, he's confused and he's terrified. It's, it's a horrific scene. And then verse 25, and then they sat down to eat. 
it, it just sort of shows the state of their hearts that they were like unbothered by what had just happened. And, and I have one more warning for us. This will be my last warning, I promise. <laughs> but, but there is also a tendency, I have it when I read this, to distance myself from that type of evil and wickedness and to say, how could they? Like, I have, I have never attempted murder. Not to brag, it's just true. I've never attempted murder. And so it's easy to say, how could you attempt murder? How could you make someone suffer like that? But that's a problem when we begin to distance ourselves from great wickedness in Scripture. James, James chapter 1 says, But each of us, each person, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Scripture talks about this progression of sin. The brothers didn't start with murder and slavery. They started with envy because their brother got what they didn't have. It started with envy, and it was a slippery slope. 17 years of letting envy grow, of letting sin live and multiply in our hearts. And the truth is that you and I, we don't get to distance ourselves from sin as we look at Scripture because we're sinners. And left to our own, outside of the grace of God, you and I have the same exact capacity for evil. Our hearts are just as wicked. Now, maybe our, our desires are different, right? The, the bait on the hook might be more or less enticing based on who we are, but we have the same tendency. And we see that sin takes them farther than they wanted to go and ends up costing more than they wanted to pay. And we know that that's true, don't we? I mean, have you ever found yourself in a place because of sin that has grown, that, that has taken you to a place you never would have signed up for, that, that led you down a path you didn't want to be on? Maybe there's some of us here today that are caught in that. Like sin that I can identify and confess, but I don't really want to kill. I, I, I kind of like it a little bit. I know that's bad, so I'll just keep it on the outskirts and, and let it live just a little bit, and that's a dangerous game. So, so we need to be very careful before we disassociate ourselves from this bad thing that these bad men did. This passage goes on, and they sell Joseph for 20 shekels of silver, and this high school kid is led away into misery, alone, and terrified, and, betra- and betrayed. If you can't turn the page, and you're living in that moment, it is brutal. It's horrible. And so to condense the next few chapters into just a, a few minutes, there's there is years of suffering ahead for Joseph as he gets to Egypt. There's this roller coaster of, of highs and lows that you should go read, um, but we don't have time to cover it today. But, but he, he, he gets to Egypt, he's bought, he's purchased by Potiphar, and, and he actually begins to faithfully serve. And, and he gains a little bit of status in Potiphar's house, and it feels like, okay, maybe the suffering is easing just a little bit. And then what happens? Potiphar's wife accuses him and he's falsely imprisoned and and thrown into another pit. 
After living as a slave, he's falsely accused and imprisoned. And imprisoned, he, he gets this false sense of hope, but he's lied to and, and forgotten. He thinks things might change, and then they don't, and he sits in the pit more. And through it all, there's this theme that Joseph, he's faithful. He doesn't ever quit, but, but the word says that the Lord was with Joseph. All throughout these next few chapters, but the Lord was with Joseph, but God's spirit was with Joseph. See, there was a good father who had his hand on the situation. Even in the midst of being in the pit and, the, and like the moment when Joseph doesn't understand how or why his good father is allowing this to happen, we see that there was a good father, even when he couldn't see the end of the story. And then finally, after years of suffering, he is given this opportunity to go before Pharaoh. And through God's providence, he's given the opportunity to, to like foresee this famine that's coming and to warn Pharaoh and to make a plan, and, and he prepares for it. And Pharaoh is so impressed by, by what God is doing through this man that he appoints him and makes him second in command in all of the land. And he puts him in charge of the land and managing this plan. And so 22 years later, as Joseph is ruling and, and, and helping this famine, uh, helping Egypt get through this famine, here come his brothers. Only this time, they are coming like needy. And they don't recognize him at first as they get to Egypt, but he sees them. And what do they do when they get there? They bow before this person in authority, fulfilling God's plan, fulfilling God's dream, because when God says something, it comes true always. Because he's faithful. And so initially, Joseph is... is He's, he's kind of harsh with them. And for the next few chapters, there's these multiple back and forths. And we can see that, that Joseph is like clearly in, in turmoil at this situation, as is appropriate. And there's moments when it says like Joseph had to leave. He had to leave because he, he went away and wept. Like he, he is all caught up in this situation. And, and he, he tests them and he puts them through some stress. And we see this whole story come to a point in Genesis 45. And so I know we read it, but I want to read it again. Genesis 45, verses 1 through 10. Then Joseph couldn't control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard and all the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it wasn't you who sent me, but God. 
He's made me father to Pharaoh and lord over all of his house and ruler over all of the land of Egypt. Hurry up and go. Go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph. God has made me lord over all of Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. Man. Like, what a scene. It's so powerful. I legitimately got, like, emotional as I read it this week and, and, like, preparing. Like, it's so intense. It's such a good story. And so the question for us today is, like, what do we do? What, what do we do with it? There's so, many, so much good truth, so many good lessons that we can glean from this story. I mean, Joseph serves as a great example on how to, pres- how to persevere through suffering. Like when you, when you can't comprehend why God, you would allow this to happen. When you can't turn the page and see the bow on it, like, like why God, he's a great example. And how easy is it to lose perspective of that when we're suffering? Easy to preach. Easy to say into a microphone. Something else to experience in real life when you're in the pit. But it's true. We can look at this story and say, man, we've got to forgive like, like Joseph. And that's true and right and good. And maybe we struggle with forgiveness. Sometimes I do, and, I, and no one's ever tried to kill me. I have to imagine that if someone sinned against me in that way, I would struggle even more. And so this story says something about our ability to forgive like Joseph. Or we can look at it and say, man, we, we have got to to." to be on it. We've got to be recognizing sin and confessing it and killing it because when sin grows in our lives, it takes us farther than we ever want to be. It costs us more than we want to pay. Maybe some of us in here are, are, if we're honest, in in the deepest parts of our hearts, we know we're letting sin grow. And we might identify it, but we haven't killed it. And and it usually does, it doesn't take me long. It doesn't take much introspection to, to find some sin in my heart that I need to confess. Or, or lastly, maybe we can look at this story and be like, man, God, God can redeem the very worst situation. And that's absolutely true. When it seems like there's no way forward, I can tell you stories in my life of situations where I thought that is never getting fixed. And God's grace is unbelievable and he can do whatever he wants. That doesn't mean everything gets fixed and we get to see the end of every point of suffering on this side of heaven but God is faithful and it's still true. And so while all those things are right and true, and maybe some of us here need to hear one of those today, it would actually be a big miss if we ended the sermon and talked about those good, right, and true lessons because we would miss the very best thing about this story. And I I was back and forth on whether or not I should say this today and... um, I thought this might cause some church division and a little bit of controversy, but I'm going to say it anyways. People get mad when I say it. Star Wars, episode three, is the best Star Wars movie. Now, I'm going to give you a second just to chew on that because there might be an emotional reaction, okay? And that's fine. I get it. But I do believe with my whole heart, Star Wars episode three is the best. I love the Star Wars movies. I think, I think they're like awesome. I like them better than all the epic, the, the Lord of the Rings, the Marvel movies, uh, I, I love Star Wars. And episode three is my favorite. And you could have, 
like never watched any Star Wars, and we could sit down and watch episode three, and it would be awesome. It would, we would have a great time. You come over, we'd make some popcorn. It's a full movie. You, you could see the beginning, middle, and end. You could enjoy it, and you could walk away and say, man, that's a great movie, and you would be correct. <laughs> but you would also miss the thing that makes that movie awesome. It's not just the movie. It's, the, it's, it's like how it fits into the whole saga and like what's happening in all of Star Wars. So I'll stop talking about Star Wars, but I think you get where I'm going. We can look at this story of Joseph and be like, man, that's a good story. We can learn some good stuff that's true. But if we, just, if we just look at that and we don't zoom out and we don't see the saga, we don't see what, what God is doing in redemptive history at the end of Genesis. We don't see how this points in a thousand ways to Christ and his gospel then we've missed the best thing. And so, so with those eyes, with eyes that we do have the luxury of turning some pages and seeing that Christ would come and he would suffer for sin, that God's wrath would be poured out on him in our place and he would get up again after three days, victorious over sin, and that God's ultimate redemption would be accomplished in Christ. So with, with the eyes of the gospel, I want to make just four observations of, of like, there are a ton. It was hard to pick. But just four observations from Genesis 45. And the first is this. Look at verse 4. Joseph says, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near. Come near to me, please. And they came near. Now think about the story. Think about the last time he saw them the horror of what they did to him. And now he's in a position where he has all the power and all the authority to bring the hammer of justice on this, this sick thing that was done to him. He wouldn't be wrong for doing it. It would be justice. It wouldn't be evil revenge. But what does he do instead? He doesn't bring the hammer. He says, come near. Come near to me. Do you see it? Do you see the gospel message that you and I as criminals guilty of sin in the presence of a holy God deserving the hammer. That instead he, he wouldn't bring the hammer, but he would say, hey, come near. Enter in to relationship. Jesus is the greater Joseph and he is still inviting sinners near because he overcame the suffering and the wrath of God in our place. There was this, um, I, I got to preach at a, a Christian school uh, down in South Florida, and they, I got to preach at an elementary school chapel one time, which is always like fun and about how you would expect, right? You got to preach a little differently to elementary schoolers. And so I was getting ready to preach this elementary school chapel, and I was reading through John, um, and I got to the last chapter, John 21. And I read this, I read <laughs> this verse, and I was like, that is elementary school awesome. And that's what I'm preaching. So Jesus says, it's this scene where the disciples are on the boat. Jesus has already been crucified, killed, and, and risen again. And the, his disciples, uh, after totally abandoning him in his time of need, are out on the boat, and Jesus is on the shore. And there's this back and forth, and, and, and they, like, Jesus starts to invite them to him. And Jesus says, John 21, 12, Then Jesus said to them, Come have breakfast. That was my elementary school talk. I love it. Like, come, like, hey, come have breakfast. I did, I'd read it before, but I'm not sure I had really appreciated that Jesus says, come have breakfast in the Bible. That's amazing. And so Jesus says to his disciples who had, 
who had just totally abandoned him, who had denied him, who had ran for their lives, who had, like, in the most critical time said, I know I said I believe that, but actually no way. And they abandoned him. And what does he say? He says, come have breakfast with me. Let's talk about it. Come near. It's, it's the most beautiful and the most undeserved invitation of all time. The, the second thing I want to point out in this passage is the very next verse, verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. That is crazy. It's, it's been forgiven. It's totally forgiven. Don't even think about it. It's gone. What, what you've done in the past, the shame of your past, the sins of your past, it's been paid for. It doesn't own you anymore. You don't have to carry the weight of it anymore. And I have the power to say that because you sinned against me. Do you see it? Do you see the, the gospel? Do you see the beauty that, that your Savior would say, come near and you're totally forgiven? I remember it no more. And so you don't have to walk in the shame of your sin. I'm not holding it over you. And I can say that because it was against me. The punishment for your sin, it's gone. It's not just, it's not just forgiven and, and forgotten. It's been paid for. You don't have to worry about paying for a thing that has been paid for. Christ paid for our sins on the cross. And that means actually in real life that we don't have to carry around the guilt and the shame. That Joseph would say to his murderous brothers, don't be angry with yourselves that you did that. Just come near. It reminds me of the prodigal son when he returns home after squandering his inheritance and, and ruining everything. And he comes home with this big speech of, Dad, if you'll just take me back as a hired servant. Like, I know I can't be your son and I don't deserve to be, but, and I know I did all these things wrong and, I, and I'm sorry. And he comes home and his father ran to him, embraced him and kissed him. And as he starts in on his, on his prepared speech, his dad basically is just like, hush. <laughs> just, just hush. It's gone. Come inside. That is the gospel, and it's beautiful. Number three, he says three times in these 10 verses, God sent me. God sent me. God sent me. He said the sovereignty of God in all of this, he was working all things. Even in the darkest spot where it seemed like there is no way, God was working. When our limited infant minds can't understand why we're in the hospital room and people are poking and squeezing us, God is there. Our good Father is there, and he's working, even when we can't understand it. Do you see it? Do you see the gospel goodness? That in the darkest hour, like, like when it seemed like Christ's mission was done because he had been arrested, tortured, crucified, and killed, and his disciples had scattered because of their fear and their sin and their selfishness, it seems like, well, that's done. And yet God was working because he is a good father and he is sovereign. When it seemed like, God, how could you allow these 12 men to do this? To... to, to sell this kid into slavery, this, this horrible thing. What good could possibly come from this? God was working. God was orchestrating and moving things in his direction. And then number four, down in verse nine, Joseph says, hurry, hurry, and go up to my father. Like, like you've got to go. 
This good news cannot stay here. It is not just for you. Like you've, you've got to take this message to people who need to hear it because people's lives, like for the rest of their lives are going to be changed because of this message. They're going to come here. There's going to be food. There's going to, like, there's going to be land. You, you have to go. You have to share this good news. Do you see it? Do you see the goodness of the gospel that you have to take this good news because it is the most important thing? People need to know. See, we love to, when we, especially as we look at like Old Testament narratives, it's so easy to put ourselves as the main character in the story. Man, I got to forgive like Joseph. I got to slay Goliath. I got to slay the Goliaths in my life. I've got to this, I've got to that. And while there may be some truth in some of that, more often than not, we don't get to play the role of the main character. And if you haven't gotten it by now, we don't get to be Joseph. We're the brothers. We're the sinful brothers who have committed terrible crimes against a holy God, and yet because of his suffering, we get grace in return. And so this isn't in the text, but I just thought of it this week. And I'm just thinking, so like imagine with me, you've got these 12 brothers, 11 brothers, who, who have lived for 22 years at this point with the guilt of murder on their conscience. Like, like knowing what they did, 22 years, the weight of murder, thinking that their brother is dead, and then this amazing reconciliation happens, and they have to walk back and tell their father. Like, what is that walk back like? What are the conversations that are being had? How does that conversation start with their father? So actually, 22 years ago, Joseph didn't die. That like, 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 what's the human element of that? It, because the story is so not about the brothers at that point. They don't get to be, well, well, you know, we went back and we found them and we made it right. No, all they get to do is say, we did this horrible thing, but let me tell you about a savior. Let me tell you about what Joseph has done. Let me tell you the good news of what he said. So you, you, so you, you sold him into slavery? Yeah, he, he didn't die. We sold him into slavery. And you saw him again. What did he say to you? He said, come near. That's the most incredible news ever. What incredible reconciliation. And, and Joseph's life gives us a taste of the final reconciliation that was to come in Christ. It's a story of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation, has given us the good news of this ultimate reconciliation and said, you got to go. People need to hear it. Listen to this quote from, from Ray Ortland: The gospel being what it is and always will be, a message of reconciliation, our churches should be the most reconciling, peaceable, happy places in town. We are so open to enemies, so meek in the face of injuries, so forgiving toward the undeserving. If we do make people angry, let this be the reason. We refuse to join in their selfish battles. We are following a higher call. We are peacemakers, the true sons of God. May our ministries of reconciliation stand out with public obviousness. He has given us the same ministry of reconciliation, the same good news to take to people who need it. 
And as we draw near, as we accept that invitation that says, I know what you've done, but come near. I've paid for it. I'm inviting you into relationship. As we draw near and we abide with Christ and we're connected to the vine and we, and we live lifestyles of abiding and worship and being filled up and reminded constantly of this reconciliation that, that transforms and sanctifies us, that ought to go out. <laughs> that ought to come out. And that quote about what our churches look like should be true. That we are about the ministry of reconciliation because of what Christ has done. So as we close, um, I, I just want to highlight maybe some lies. We, we talked about those, those four observations and um, our flesh is totally opposed to the invitation of Christ. And we have an enemy who is absolutely opposed to the invitation of Christ. And so while we might know it, in our heads, and we would check yes on the box, there's all sorts of things that keep us from actually taking a step towards it. And what the enemy loves to do is whisper lies and take something that's like kind of true and just, just twist it a little bit to keep you from, from drawing near. So, so as we talk about that first point, when we hear the invitation of Christ that says, come near, sometimes the enemy gets in our, in our heads and says, he doesn't really want you. Like, he knows how you're living. He knows what you think about. He knows what's going on in your heart. And I know that he's forgiven you, but he doesn't like you right now until you get it together. And so this, this invitation to draw near is like, ah, don't believe the lie. Jesus says, draw near to me. Or, or when we hear this, this thought that, man, remember your sin no more. It's been paid for. Don't be angry that you sold me into slavery. When Jesus says, like, I've cast your sin out. Sometimes we, we know that, but we believe the lie that there's still a little bit of a burden of, like, atoning for our sins that I have to carry. I know, I know that I'm forgiven and accepted, but there's still, like, a little bit that I need to pay for. It's still on me a little bit, and I haven't performed well enough this week, and there's too much going on in my heart, and I'm too in the pit to even understand what's going on. We believe the lie just a little bit. Or when we hear about God's sovereign hand of our Father, who's, who's over what doesn't feel good right now, sometimes we're tempted to believe the lie that God's, this, this could not be God's plan. It is messed up, or I have messed it up. There is no hope in this suffering that I'm in. And again, it's not that every, every time that we suffer, every experience of pain that we have, that, that we get to see this beautiful reconciliation of it in our lifetime. But it is true that God is sovereign and his hand is over it. And we can trust that he is working all things for his glory. And then lastly, he says, man, hurry and go. You got to go tell my father. Jesus says, go, take the good news. You, you have the ministry of reconciliation. Go and make disciples. Sometimes we're just tempted to believe the lie that it's really not that urgent. Sure, it was urgent when it first happened. I get that. But now, like, I mean... People know it's not that big of a deal. People know what church is. It's just not quite as urgent anymore. It's not quite as life and death. And we believe that lie. And so my encouragement to you today is we can see what God is, was, was working from the end of Genesis, that, that he's bringing his people back and he's relieving a temporary suffering, but actually was leading them into 400 years of more suffering. This wasn't the final redemption, but it did point to the one 
that was to come. And so, so today, my encouragement to you is don't believe the lies. Don't believe the thing that's kind of true, but just twisted. Listen to the voice of your Savior, who, who, not because you deserve it, but because he has suffered in your place, he says to you today, no matter what you bring in, no matter what suffering you're going through, he says, draw near. Come near to me, please. That's the invitation. It's the same as it was in that room. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for what you have accomplished on our behalf. Lord, we we rightly deserve the hammer, and yet you entered in with grace. And in our place, Lord, you took the wrath of God in our place so that we, sinners, caught in our sin, who let sin live, who who let sin grow in our lives, we're we're slow to confess it. Lord, you you say anyways, come near because I've paid for it. Draw, Draw near and let me in. Father, we thank you for that radical grace. And Lord, we just say yes, we, we, we love you and we want you. In Christ's name, amen.